You're listening to Grumpire with your hosts, LB and Andrew. Hey, LB. Hey, Andrew. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Grumpire Podcast, where you get to be a... No, nothing. I was just <laughs> going to do a bit that I didn't prepare, so there's no bit. But what there is, <laughs> is let's get this out of the way really quick. tpublic.com slash user slash Grumpire. Go there. There's art that's on the website. I did it. Doesn't matter that I did it. I guess it does a little bit. Pat me on the back just a little bit. Just a little bit. Okay, done. What's up today? <laughs> What's up with you? You know, Andrew, I have a little bone to pick. Speaking of, you know, being a grump, because we are the podcast that lets you be a grump. I think maybe that's what your bit was going to be. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> Where you can be the grump. Just yes. call in 1-800-G-R-U-M-P-I-R-E. I don't know if that's the right amount of numbers or letter. Whatever. Anyway. Know, it, can you do knuckle tattoos with Grumpire? G-R-U-M-P-I-R-E. Oh my God, you can. So what is your bone that you're picking? <laughs> my bone. Okay, so our theme song, right? I, I'm not going to say what it is because, you know. You just heard it. You heard it. I'm sure you've heard it everywhere on the freaking internet now. But I want to say, like, the reason why we picked it for our show is because it is about being true to yourself and sticking to your guns and not letting anybody influence you differently, you know, because, you know... Well, hey, wait, wait, wait. I think the show, we do allow people to influence us if they're... Well, fine. If they're well, you know, argued. Yeah, okay, yes. So... Of, cor of course there's an allowance for that, but, like, just don't let the internet get you down because sure. you don't like something. Sure. Like, you know, yes. but but I'm annoyed, Andrew. I'm so annoyed because now, like, the song is all over the place. <sighs> Though the song is a 100% one-hit wonder, which means it's ubiquitous. <laughs> right. In Walmarts and other stores <laughs> abound. I think you're saying that once the internet gets a hold of it, it's even worse. Yeah, pretty much. So, but I'm not going to apologize for break my stride um yeah because that guy who produced it i mean he produced tragic kingdom <laughs> he did that's right super hot hit producer i mean come on yeah all right all right all right enough of that though on our show today we have a cool guest by the name of preston fassel preston is a prolific writer you can see bylines all over the place especially in the horror uh, writing realm um, he's got bylines at Fangoria Rumor, Daily Grindhouse really the, the trifecta of horror writing Preston also is a novelist and a biographer so he's a super fancy published writer he has a new book coming out in March of 2023 and it's called Beasts of 42nd Street so it's like that exploitation era of 42nd Street we all are familiar with the, that kind of cinema yeah. the, like the dirty underbelly of exploitation New York City. Yeah. yeah 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 <laughs> so yeah look for that though uh, you can get that from cemeterydance.com so Preston's on our show today, not talking about horror, ironically. <laughs> I mean, well, there's something really violent in one yeah. of them, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and it is horrific, but it is, I guess, technically not a horror movie. Right. Nor is it really that genre. Anyway, let's get to it. <laughs> All right. So Preston, why don't you like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a once-in-a-lifetime event. Gonna blow your mind. <laughs> It's gloriously fun and madly enjoyable. You're damn right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Man, where do I start? First of all, it, it let me down. I don't feel that the movie that we got was what I was sold on by the trailers. I thought that this was going to be this, this kind of panopticon of life on the eve of the Manson murders, and that it was going to be this examination of the, the culture that birthed that, and the entire environs of SoCal, and the intersection of the uh, music, and movie, and socialite scenes, and that it was going to be this, this much broader movie than it was and then we spend like what feels like half the film on the sets of this western tv show and i just 
really don't like westerns. If I had to hmm. like list <laughs> all of the genres of films that exist from my favorite to my least favorites, I mean, knee-jerk western is probably at the absolute very bottom of that. And so I go into this movie really? expecting this. Westerns. Can, westerns. Can we pause for a second and talk sure. about westerns for a second? No westerns? Any westerns? Pale Rider's okay. And then even there, it's kind of almost like a grindhouse western as opposed to like a straight western. But they've just huh. they've, they've just never clicked with me. Uh, they, Have you they've... seen the Elvis Flaming Star? I don't even know what you're talking about with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis, in his early film career, it was like his second or third movie, it's his best performance. He plays uh, half Native American and half uh, Caucasian, I guess. And he's torn between allegiance to the town and to his family when some drama happens in which deals directly with his family but his performance is amazing and it doesn't hinge on let's cram a musical number and it's not happy it's not it's just a really fantastic performance i never knew this about elvis and westerns i kind of like you i watched westerns when i was a kid with my dad there are some things that i remember the war wagon with kurt douglas i i remember that fondly but like i can't be bothered too much they're boring they are kind of boring and uh, I think people have a conception of Westerns as being like really right wing, <laughs> you know, because uh, John Wayne's a big part of that, you know. But um, yeah, I, that's pretty interesting. Like when when I find out someone doesn't like Westerns, I'm like, oh, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> but, but like Three Ten to Play Yuma, more. there are there are Westerns like Three Ten to Yuma, including the remake that are still really good but they're outliers right yeah 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 and, and yeah. most of them do have like what feels like this this very basic template and like i do see this right wing bent in a lot of them and maybe that's because a lot of them that i was exposed to were the the, the john wayne westerns that were in constant rotation on local and amc growing up in st louis but it's it's just not a genre that holds a lot of appeal to me if i want to watch something where it's lawless and people are dirty and fending for themselves i'll watch you know a middle ages movie or you know <laughs> something set in the re right. renaissance as opposed to the west they're like sleepy sunday afternoon movies so yeah i get what you're saying like you want something like grittier yeah well revisionist westerns then like that'll go for it that'll go for it okay all right okay. but yeah so right. you know I'm, I'm sold on like this you know this fantastic look at uh hollywood on the eve of this cataclysmic event that you know shakes up mm -hmm. hollywood itself and then uh america broadly with hollywood kind of acting as this microcosm of it and then i spend an hour and a half on a friggin western set and it's like <laughs> okay that's that's not the movie that i came to see and then you know speaking of right wing and uh this you know very kind of toxic dude bro culture I just got this very bad vibe off the film. I did not like Brad Pitt's character whatsoever. I did not like that the film venerated him the way that it did. Here's this guy who, you know, hauls off. Pretty much the movie tells you he killed his wife. And then I heard that in the novelization of it, that's essentially confirmed. And it's like this aw shucks attitude towards it. And that to me encapsulates very much a lot of things that were wrong about that era in American cinema and culture in a very bad way that the movie sees seems to kind of uh -huh. think is cool and hip and slick and it just left me with a uh -huh. very bad taste in my mouth. I think maybe maybe I'm being generous in saying this, but I think the Western theme was probably chosen purposely because uh, in 1969, you know, we started seeing a change in filmmaking, especially in the Western genre. Like it, it went from those kind of hokey, sleepy Westerns to, you know, things like the Wild Bunch and, you know, stuff like that. So, like, I think maybe he was, like, making it so that you could see how the culture was changing at that time, you know. Well, well, you, you're bringing up a good point because the director tells him he wants him to be dressed basically like a dirty hippie as opposed to yeah. the typical mustachioed villain in a Western. Just give him something that a hippie would wear. So he gives him a, a dyed custard jacket and gives him longer hair, stuff like mm -hmm. this. That was directly spoken in the film. So I think you're right about showing the transition out of his bounty law show the the clue gulagers type of western yeah thing uh you can speak on the clue gulager western thing lb i think clue gulager played a huge part in the inspiration for this this whole movie you know uh as far as like the seed 
of getting this movie going and the fact that he has a cameo in it it just you know puts well, the icing on that what's cake what's his but, western called the the main one um, billy is it billy the kid well he plays billy the kid yeah pat garrett and billy the kid was that the name of the show <laughs> i am blanking i feel really terrible right now well you go check blanking. out your old podcast get a clue <laughs> you'll hear all about it i'm supposed to be the clue googler expert and i'm blanking on the name of this this series i'm sorry well, i didn't yeah. mean to throw a okay wrench well, in your anyway so the tall Man? Tall man, yes, thank yeah, you. My goodness. Is. You're right. My goodness. But he's he's <laughs> Clue Gulliger is pretty short, and so the Pat Garrett's the tall man in that. Yeah. But Clue Gulliger stays on the show for a very long time and he's like the heartthrob of the show. Mm-hmm. And so he's very popular at the time. And Bounty Law seems to be inspired by that type of show, if not that show in particular. Right. So it's not really I don't think it's like exactly like Clue's career, but I think it is definitely a nod towards his early career but brad pitt you mentioned you you don't like his demeanor or or like his character is just kind of a a, i don't know like i don't want to say douchebag but like i don't really know if there is that much to his character other than he's just an overconfident guy who is you know he's a good friend he is a good friend but i can't imagine like really wanting to hang out with cliff that much yeah that was something i was torn on because i like their friendship and it's like on paper i wanted to like these guys together and i I felt a tremendous deal of sympathy for Leonardo DiCaprio's character, but when it comes to Cliff, it's just like this this guy's awful. And sure, he's you know, he's really great to his buddy, but you know, even the worst people have that one person that they really like and they really care about. And it's like, why make the decision to make this guy so really awful and then never really call him on it? It's like the movie itself seems to excuse him and to, you know, have this odd, you know, boys will be boys, aw shucks attitude towards this guy. And he's he's a jerk to people other than Leonardo DiCaprio and you know I, I don't understand the the choice behind that decision unless there was you know some some admiration on Quentin Tarantino's part for these qualities in him which was also something that I felt was a little unsettling well if there's details about the character that he's an amalgam of things there's the thing that happened in the early 80s I think it was early 80s on Robert Wagner's boat with yeah with uh, yeah Natalie Wood Natalie Wood and Christopher Walken was there my friend's mom swore that Christopher Walken did it. But recently, talk has been that Wagner actually had something to do with it. Really something to do with it instead of just being there. The whole thing was she fell off the boat and drowned. But the Hollywood lore is question is... who did it? Because nobody just falls off a boat and drowns. In the middle of the night, somebody would have seen it, etc. and so on. So something else, foul play, right? And so that seems directly to have influenced that beat in the character. And the other thing is that he's based on a well-known stuntman who would come in and um, like straighten people up who needed straightening up. If there was like a, a hothead stuntman, he would come in and show him what for, which is reflected in the Bruce Lee scene. Yeah, see, and I, I even so. like the idea that, you know, if he did want to do this panopticon of Hollywood to like incorporate all these bits of lore and to have all these amalgams. But if you're going to do the whole Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood thing, why make it one of your good guys? Yeah. Uh, because that makes a good guy complicated. <laughs> it makes a character that you shouldn't necessarily like or you don't know enough to like. And to make him a hero, that's complicated and it challenges you, the viewer. It's a challenge. That's it. I love complicated good guys and bad guys. I love Breaking Bad. I love Mad Men. I, I absolutely freaking love The Sopranos. But to me, there's a world of difference between, you know, Tony Soprano, who, you know, does questionable things and kills within the confines of organized crime, and a glorified domestic abuser who shoots his wife with a spear gun and, you know, walks away scot-free and just <laughs> well, has this I appreciate the editing in that scene because the editing makes it with that sound editing especially makes it sound like there's a big enough wave crashing on the boat where he could have accidentally pulled the trigger but you said in the novelization which is what we don't see we don't have those words we have what the film presents us it looks like a perhaps it was an accident wink 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 maybe (laughs) it's not yeah so I think that yeah. that kind of editing is clever in that scene. But to treat it as, yeah, it does kind of stick in my craw a bit because of the Natalie Wood analogy. It, treat it almost as a, a wink doesn't feel good. Yeah. Right. It's like a, a value of human life question almost. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the thing that bothered me about it. It's that, you know, this, this woman's life is completely disposable so that Cliff can, you know, drive around with his dog in his convertible. And so uh, we got those issues. Those are clear issues. What other issues? 
issues you got? It was too long for what was there on screen. I really feel like I, I don't, uh, I am not opposed to the Lancer stuff in principle, even though I don't really care for Westerns myself, but I don't feel that so very much of a relatively long film needed to be dedicated to that. There was a point where it almost felt like this was a movie about a guy trying to reinvent his career as a Western star, as opposed to being Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I feel like Quentin Tarantino got way too hung up on the idea of the Western TV show as broadly emblematic of this, mm -hmm. this cultural shift. I feel like that should have been a set piece in a movie that had more to explore this setting and uh, this time period. Right. Instead of just setting the setting of Southern California in 1969, right? Yeah. So like, instead of just turning all of Southern California, wherever he shot, and turning the clock back on that set-wise, which apparently was surreal for everybody who lived there, <laughs> that almost doesn't even show up in the movie. Exactly. During the driving around scenes. It's just, it's almost unnecessary for that much detail because the camera only catches a little rectangle of it at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Did he have to really change real life storefronts <laughs> for weeks at a time whatever months maybe it's strange that he he did that uh budget wise anyway exactly i mean with all of that with all that work went in just think of like all the stuff that you could have gotten out of it it's such a fascinating time and place in american history and it really mm -hmm. is this this eve of change 1969 is this cataclysmic year i mean the beatles break up we land on the moon the manson murders uh it is like the definitive mm -hmm. end you know if the death of john f kennedy was the end of camelot you that, that was kind of the beginning of the end of this era 1969 was the definitive end it was the coda and the ushering in of this new age and you're going to spend an hour of it on a hollywood backlot on a western set after going <laughs> through all that work to change southern california and southern california was like this hotbed of it and it just feels like very expensive window dressing for a movie that could have almost been set anywhere else yeah yeah i mean they rebuilt a uh, spawn ranch which was actually i guess good I mean, we don't really know what Spawn Ranch looked like except for old photos, but we rebuilt that place for those scenes, and that was good that it's accurate, I suppose. A complaint that I have about this film, and I didn't have this until we rewatched it. We've only seen uh, it last... twice. I've seen it twice. Theater so... and this last week. Yeah, uh, in the theater as we watched it, I was kind of transfixed, to be honest, as far as like, you don't really know the purpose behind the scenes that are the you know shooting the westerns tv shows and, and all that like so you you kind of feel more immersed in it because you don't know where it's going you don't know where it's going to lead to so you just don't have expectations re-watching it it's a total slog to get through that stuff yeah. and then the ending comes up really quickly and you're like that's it that's all that happened <laughs> you know yeah you know? so it's like this movie really does not have the staying power that i think a lot of people people assigned to it you know they talk about this film as a like uh, a hangout and do nothing type of film like where it's just a, a film where you know a bunch of friends are hanging out and you're just hanging out with them like dazed and confused or you know like those types of films this doesn't feel like that to me at all so i i don't i don't know i like i feel like this film has i don't know uh, uh, there's a certain type of person who is really really into this movie and it's like they're kind of fantasy prone i think it's hard for me to like think that it's great it really is it's it's okay if i did my tarantino rankings it's going to be on the like bottom half yep. honestly i agree yep, yep. now Majorly. uh do you do you know anything and i because i don't uh, do you know anything about how he shot it with what film stock and all that? Or if he did use digital, what did he, do you know? I have no idea. No clue. I really don't. Yeah, I mm. wasn't interested in it enough to dig any deeper after I saw it. That's usually stuff that well, I find. I, I, know what, I know what you're asking this. Man. Yeah, there's there's a <laughs> Cinerama Dome thing that he he sh he showed this in or, or whatever. Like, he's really big on format stuff, but this movie doesn't look like he went that far with it. It does... It might be 35 or set whatever millimeter film stock, but it doesn't have grain that reflects the time in, in shooting. And I'll get to this later again, but not about this movie. In shooting this movie, I would think it would have behooved him to shoot it in a manner that looked like Bob Rafelson was shooting it or something. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the kind of resources that he has, he could replicate as in actually shoot it really that way with all the big money that he always has. It's just way too glossy. That's it. It's too glossy. And I, I noticed this the second time because the first time, I, I like Elbia, was just like watching this thing unfold. We don't know what's going to happen. So we're on that ride. We're with it and we give it its uh, good faith. Now, the second time, we know what to expect story-wise. So now I can look at all this other stuff and take it in a different way. And thinking about the visuals on it, compositionally fine and everything, as far as blocking and colorful, sure. But the film grain is the problem. doesn't look up its dream time, you know? Well, maybe it's glossy because it's revisionist history. Maybe. No, yeah, I was just about to say, LB made that comment a few moments ago about like being fantasy prone. And I think that is parts of this in, you know, maybe it's even... But when he shoots the segments, like like uh, FBI and stuff, that's accurate. He does yeah. use those techniques that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So... He could do it, but he only does it for those shows on TV or whatever that he shot with Leonardo. Like how um, the Great Escape sequence was. I just don't know why he didn't do that with the rest of the movie. <laughs> but you you guys are right. It's probably like we're looking in on his fantasy of what it was like. He was only a kid at the time. So what does he know? So this is his fantasy of having done a bunch of research and then rewritten history. <laughs> That's kind of all of his films, though, right? His fantasy of, of whatever the subject is. <laughs> I guess, yeah. What A bunch of what if. What if I did it yeah. this way? It would be so much cooler. And, you know, for the most part, he's right. He does make really cool movies. Cool. Cool, man. Yeah. But yeah, that's sorry. Sorry for barrowing over everybody. No, no, no. But I mean that's that really covers all of my complaints. I, I think that it was a really big missed opportunity. I almost feel like the trailer was the movie that mm. should have been made. Mm. That trailer was amazing. Like I was on the fence about it. Uh true crime stuff is always very iffy for me. Right. I've actually got a background in criminal psychology. I graduated with a bachelor's in abnormal psychology. I almost went into that oh. as a career field before I burned out on it very badly. And so anything uh. having to do with with true crime is kind of touchy for me because I've you know kind of gotten a peek behind that curtain. So I was very much on the fence with you know another Manson movie. And then I saw that uh-huh. I saw the trailer for this and I was like, holy shit, this looks amazing. And I mean, I was there at the Alamo Draft House opening weekend for this i was jacked i was excited and i can't remember the last time before that or since that i walked out of a movie that let down i think the only other time that immediately comes to mind is walking out of it too during the angel of the morning vomit monster scene uh, <laughs> you know i don't like the the attitude of the movie i don't like the smugness of it i don't like the obsession with this western television show to the point of spending an hour and a half of a three hour long movie there just total total letdown yeah i don't know why other than him just having the fantasy of what i i want to make a western like this i wish i'd made a western like this back then but i can now so apparently he has loads of footage and like what he did with hateful eight he could make a series out of it and hateful eight it benefits it i did not like the theatrical cut and then i saw the one hour episodes each five of them and it benefited i was like oh okay this works he could do that with this and maybe there's more but i think what it would be is there would be more bounty law or more other west lancer or you know other tv show he like he would have shot the whole episode just to have two minutes of it in the movie that's what i'd be afraid of because if he shot like other stuff (laughs) around hollywood and like we got more on the side characters i mean i would have watched a movie about a bunch of those side characters much sooner than i would want to watch one about cliff booth and whatever the hell leonardo DiCaprio's character's name was i mean you know going back to the missed opportunities if you're going to recreate all of these lush and vibrant places and pay such close attention to period detail you know give me a hangout movie that exists in that world and not on a hollywood backlot yeah i would love to you know watch a tv series with just these hangout episodes set in 1969 beautifully recreated hollywood that would be cool mm-hmm. i could watch a lot more of margot robbie as sharon tate i could and apparently there was a lot more shot with her too yeah but i, think, I may, <laughs> when, maybe there's when, a contract thing with leo that he gets this x amount of time and yeah of course of course there is when we rewatched this i was really confused because i thought there actually was a lot more scenes with sharon and then i realized later that i was confusing this movie with the really awful <laughs> ho- horror movie called the haunting of sharon tate oh, which starts yeah. stars hillary duff as sharon tate 
I was like, wait a minute, where's the scene with the guy who like works on radios and the trailer by her house? You know, like, where's this scene? It's not in the movie. It's in The Haunting of Sharon Tate. Yeah, it's so, a movie I didn't watch. Uh, yeah. I was I was given. <laughs> it's really bad. I was given a code to that, a voodoo code or whatever. I loaded it in and I was like, I'm never going to watch this, you know? Yeah. So it's you it, would watch it yeah, on your own. It's really horrible. Like if, if the revisionist history, like sort of exploitation of real life murders bothers you do not watch The Haunting of Sharon Tate because I don't know if you know the premise but it's like after she's murdered she comes back as a ghost kind of in the house before the murders take place so she's like watching everything happen again it's awful anyway yeah so I, I felt foolish <laughs> but I still want more of Sharon in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it would be nice. I know that's a criticism too, that a lot of people had that that she didn't have very much to do. And I, I didn't really notice until the rewatch. And I was like, wow, yeah, you know, that's actually a valid criticism because uh, she's great and it. Margot's great in it. I, I get what he's going for. And I get that it's like this giving her like this life on screen and just give it, giving her this opportunity to just exist and be alive. And it's, it's a sweet sentiment mm-hmm. on paper, but does it really add anything narratively to the movie? You know, I, I don't really think it does. And, you know, other than that scene of her watching her performance in the movie theater, Sharon Tate almost becomes this, like, mythical being that, uh, you know, you have to win access to. She's like a fairy in a Zelda video game where if you, you kill the Manson family, then you get to go through the gates and meet Sharon Tate and she's going to resuscitate your career. And it's like, on the one hand, you're doing this very sweet thing for her. And then on the other hand, you're just, like, turning her into this tool of your fictional character's career revitalization and I don't feel as uncomfortable about that as I do with the Cliff Booth stuff but at the same time it's also kind of I'm always uh, the true crime aspect of the thing I'm always a little bit upset when anybody like Dahmer that show I'm not Mm. I'm not cool with it especially if the producers or whatever are trying to make it as accurate to the you know research as possible I don't need that I don't need that at all I don't need a Ted Bundy show that's why all everybody who made a Ted Bundy thing revisionist or otherwise well maybe not everybody Matthew Bright made one and apparently that just treats it like uh, a slasher with a bunch of women getting murdered and it's kind of like ooh look it's a horror it's like it's a horror movie I don't appreciate it I don't it's real stuff I don't appreciate it I do appreciate and I think it's still probably my favorite Inglorious Bastards because it's a full on what if and there's a lot of this would have been great had we been able to do this sort of justice so it's Mm -hmm. it's wish fulfillment it absolutely is and it serves a, a fun as he presented it a fun the whole topic itself isn't fun, but a fun remedy to something as heavy and serious as like Schindler's List or something. So I see its purpose as, as more beneficial to us at the audience than always just being reminded, so terrible, so terrible, so terrible. Now we get to do something about that terrible, shoot Hitler in the face while his place is burning you know wouldn't that wouldn't that have been great and there's this larger than life quality to it you know and i'm saying this as a jewish person too you know i love the ending of inglorious bastards because it is this great international force of evil that you know had such this global impact versus the very intimate nature of the manson murders you know if this had happened to you know an average person i'm sure that there'd be some true crime podcast about it but it wouldn't have the cultural cachet that it did uh it's because this happened to to these these Hollywood celebrities that we really know about the Manson murders, but it was ultimately just these you know these scummy low lives who just you know brutalized this this group of people on this very creepy intimate one on one basis versus this this massive global conflict that affected right. millions and millions and there's a kind of weird inverse thing going on. It's like the, the the bigger it is and the more people it impacts, then the the safer it feels to do something like Inglorious Bastards with it. Yeah, once it becomes more and more. Um centralized to just a few characters and they might be real it feels a, a lot more i guess disrespectful yeah and it's kind of like we all kind of own world war ii mm-hmm. right covered all of those issues inglorious no not inglorious um, <laughs> once upon a time in hollywood is not my favorite Tarantino. I don't think it's a quote-unquote bad movie. I just think it's all right. I think LB just said, okay. Mm -hmm. Preston, do you think it's bad or do you just not like it? (laughs) There are technical aspects of it that are good. There are moments that are good. I would say that it is more of a bad film than a good film. 
it's not a movie that I wouldn't rewatch for any amount of money. You know, if you were to tell me, hey, take a million dollars, watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, hell yes, I'm there. <laughs> but uh, if somebody just suggests it, if somebody wants to invite me over to watch it, I'm, I'm probably going to turn that down. <laughs> but what if they have snacks? <laughs> what snacks would lure you to watch it again? <laughs> I don't know what kind of snacks last three hours and are that good enough. <laughs> okay. All right. And so uh, I guess that's it on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wait, Andrew. So what? Andrew, wait, you're, you're forgetting something. I'm not forgetting anything. <laughs> you do this every I have time. To do, I, didn't I have to do my thing. Yes, I'm doing this so that you can do your thing. Okay. So you can interrupt you know, me and do the... Uh, you know, Preston, I was at my parents' house recently, and I was digging through some old stuff, and I found a book of poetry that I wrote in high school. And you know how in high school you think that you're dark or or you're like mysterious and complicated so you write poetry and you think it's just an expression of your soul and it's so great and everything well i happen to have a poem that i wrote in high school that i found in this notebook that is about once upon a time in hollywood i think i don't know it's actually an east tennessee version because that's where i grew up and it's called once upon a time in dollywood okay <laughs> if you want to hear this i think you should read it with the accent with the accent i don't know see i was listening to a lot of like maggie Eastup spoken word at the time i think so that's got a huge influence on this poem that i wrote in the 90s about a movie that came out in what 2018 yeah that's weird crazy right well anyway here we go okay once upon a time in dollywood i beg your pardon miss parton but why exactly would there be a roller coaster Based on a burning coal mine, an old-fashioned bed of wholesome fun with fiery carnage, explosions, and a head-on collision with a steam engine? A blazing fury. It's a disturbing concept, don't you think? Enough to make a small child cry, cry, cry in the middle of everyone, embarrassing her poor mother and father as they scream, Calm down! With a fistful of dippin' dots and a frozen lemonade. Is there anything more peaceful than a frozen lemonade? Dry your eyes, little girl. We've got an eagle show to see. Wings of America, birds of prey. More danger, Miss Parton. Yes, this smoky mountain home of yours is dear to us. A home in the woods, in the trees. Dollywood, after dark, the owls appear. The old mill, the quiet creek. It's a Scooby-Doo mystery on Eagle Mountain. Who started that coal fire anyway? Is it Dolly under that mask? I beg your pardon, Miss Pardon. Okay, that's it. For context, there's a ride at Dollywood called Blazing Fury, which is a ride that's sort of like Haunted Mansion in a way, except it doesn't have the projected faces. It's just actual just... Animatronics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that, but it's the little roller coaster that goes through this abandoned coal mine that there was a big coal fire, and it's kind of scary. I mean, it's a chintzy little ride that goes around this, it's this, based, this coal mine. There's this kind of ride that has the same format, and it's the, literally uh -huh. the same format as the Garfield ride. You can look that up. Actually, yeah. they're both on YouTube. But the Garfield ride had the same format where on either side there are dioramas with animatronic mm. stuff going on. But the Garfield ride was neon and weird. Yeah. And, and this one wasn't neon at all. It was like uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean kind of diorama. Yeah, but it's like you're driving through a coal fire and people trying to escape the coal fire. And at one point, there's a roller coaster drop and there's like a, a train coming towards you. And like right before it hits you, you drop. So it's this really nerve wracking ride. And when I was a kid, I went to Dollywood and I was so afraid of this because all of the um, posters and things they have outside the, the ride are talking about people dying in a coal fire and stuff. And I was like, this is real i mean it is real it's it's a yeah. true story so it was really it was really scary and i couldn't understand why they would make a ride that was so you know disturbing and horrible and like you know there's fire in there i don't want to like be on fire so i kind of feel it's a little bit analogous to once upon a time in hollywood's like treatment of the man of uh Manson murders, in a way. So there we go. There's my time waster. <laughs> Such a morbid thing to base a ride on. <laughs> okay, Preston, uh, your alternate film, the one that you do like that speaks to the past is... Licorice Pizza. If you thought good-reviewed movies have to be sad, well, you haven't seen Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. 
Critics are saying it's a movie you can't help but fall in love with. It's spectacular, intoxicating, and thoroughly hilarious. <laughs> Starring two untrained newcomers, both making miraculous, can't rip your eyes away debuts. I'm showman. It's what I'm meant to do. Gross. Looks like he's coming in hot. And now, <laughs> the National Board of Review has named it winner, best film of the year. You're smoking hot right now. Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza is the movie that I was sold on by the trailers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is... This is a movie full of nothing but running scenes. Yes. It could have been called Run Lola Run 2. And I loved every second of them. And they made so much use out of what they did for 1970s California than Quentin Tarantino did for what he did with 1969 California. I felt like I lived and existed in this world and that I was fortunate to be there. Wow. I'm going to speak to this and be done with it so you can continue on with your piece so i won't interrupt too much what i was speaking about film quality film style film grade this movie has it and he did it himself he did everything with film stock he did color correction he didn't do uh digital intermediates everything is and it's the real deal and it looks like it was shot sophisticated current camera movements but with film grade, film stock, coloring, everything that was done back then. And it works beautifully. I'm done. And that's just <laughs> okay. one of so many things. I mean, that really does. It's a movie about this time period that looks like it was made in this time period. And that's just such a brilliant conceit. And it comes off so well. And and the way that the phone calls in the movie sound, I just I just love that. Where you've got that like echoey, like uh, filtered sounds like I remember on Landline back in the day. And there is just such a sense of joie de vivre to this thing that is completely lacking like the nastier and uglier and more questionable undertones of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's just such a sweet movie. And I just, mm-hmm. that that is the movie that I thought I was getting. The characters are so much more likable. Like, they're kind of uh, annoying <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> but, like, they're, they're so much more likable. And, like you said, you feel like you could live in this film. Like, you could exist in this film. Even though it does have qualities that are uh, hyper-reality in some ways at some points. You feel like you might know these people or you might be able to actually hang out with them and converse and have a good time they feel like actual friends that you can be with not just like they're friends with each other like um cliff and rick or they're friends with each other but they're kind of untouchable these characters are just the opposite of that or or like somebody you know so when i was growing up in southern california i went to a private school it's not that expensive of a private school but it was too much for us anyway but my parents were paranoid of public schools they thought that i was going to get beat up that sort of thing there was a kid his first name's colin and he was a wannabe hollywood actor kid so basically kind of like our main character here but he was just a, a cute guy that's all i knew is that he even just got a commercial once he wasn't in a grand production of what um 18 kids in a bunk bed or whatever that movie was called (laughs) but yeah he was that kind of kid and like i didn't hang out with him he was an underclassman but i knew of him he was a real person and that's how this kid is so it's like i guess in in southern california you would know people like that that's how i relate to this movie is like i did know a person that like was an actor when i was the age of this kid in the movie i didn't live in this i I didn't not that old the 70s (laughs) i was born in i wasn't you know anyway that was the 90s that I'm talking about. But even still, it does speak to something. That there's much more authenticity there in these characters. They're not wish fulfillment. They're not, you know, very specific. Like, I wish this were me type characters. It's like, I've known somebody like all of mm-hmm. these people. And I think that most viewers have also all yeah. known their Alamas, their Garys. There's a little bit of fantasticism to it. And that Gary is this 15, 16 year old who has like seemingly limitless control over a gang of child henchmen. Uh, but you know that that's a lot more fun and it's fantasy and a little bit more believable than some of the stuff that goes on in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and it just adds to that joy of the film. Mm-hmm. Even the scenes where it's like Sean Penn's scenes and what's the same Bradley Cooper's scenes like those those are more or less based on real people. I mean uh, Bradley Cooper is definitely based on a real person, but because he he is Jack Holden, I think in the movie is based on William. Yeah, William. yeah, he is. 
Uh-huh. And the motorcycle stunt was based on something that Evil Knievel did, was known to do. He was known to do stunts. And I mean, obviously, Evil Knievel known to do stunts. But like on his downtime, somebody would goad him into doing a stunt. And one time he just didn't even make it to whatever he was trying to stunt. He just wrecked into a guy's car. So that was the inspiration point for the Sean Penn character. And I think this movie, the justification for if it needs to be justified, the one shot, it's not even a full scene. It's just a shot that justifies this entire film <laughs> is Tom Waits introduction where he walks into his cigarette smoke. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful shot in the film. It was LB and I both said, "Whoa." Like like <laughs> Keanu, we were both in tandem angelic woes. You know, like a chorus of whoa, you know. <laughs> Brilliant shot. Amazing. For me the shot that justifies it is the long tracking shot of the gas line with life on Mars playing and Gary running with his brother uh. weaving in and out on that bicycle and the camera just, you know, traveling along this line. And I mean just captures the the grandeur and the hopelessness and the surreality of this moment and the music and the cinematography and the, the, the kineticism of it. It's all just beautiful. It's uh, it's like the famous shot in Weekend. No oh, right. Where the the traffic accident where it's like miles and miles. Yeah. Very right. long. Very long shots in this movie. Mm-hmm. I like them. I don't like one sequence in this, and that was him running. There's lots of running scenes, but it's this one after they had already started. I just think it's fat. That's all I think. I don't think it's badly shot or anything. I just think it's 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 a piece that's not necessary for the story. And that is, the news talks about the gas shortage. The gas shortage will later in the story come into play. So we have the establishment of the gas shortage, and then you have him running next to all these cars, and then he says, it's the apocalypse, because the gas shortage. That's like two establishing gas shortage things in a row, and I don't think that the running thing is necessary, because you're going to meet the gas shortage later anyway. So that's that's the only criticism really that i have of the film that's it okay i just love it though for me this this captures this sense of being in a specific time and place and what it's like to be there in like every sense of it the sights the sounds you can imagine the smells if you want to but it is this really great perfect nostalgia piece and, and i like that the movie's not afraid to call gary on his shit you know once upon a time in hollywood was like oh yeah cliff booth shot as well <laughs> good old boy the movie knows that gary is a decent guy but also kind of a bastard in some ways and like you can tell from the movie it's like the movie acknowledges that about him and you know he to me works better as a complicated protagonist than cliff booth does yeah he's He's kind of too cocksure. That's it. And it's not necessarily that he's arrogant or anything because he's so young. And it's not that young people can't do this, but most young people don't do what he's doing. Yeah. And he's based on a real dude, right? This real dude actually did do most of what Gary Valentine does. He even had a waterbed business and a pinball business. He really did that stuff. So this movie is like once upon a time but it's like truly like once upon once upon a time makes a legend out of something that can't be made a legend Mm -hmm. and these are actual stories it's basically an anthology vignettes in in a way it's like napoleon dynamite right it's a bunch of interesting scenes put together that meander in and out of each other and you do have a conclusion it might feel rushed or or not necessarily completely earned in that moment, because I think they should have kissed in front of the movie theater. But instead, real life says, oh, that would have been better if they kissed in the movie theater. But we waited two seconds later and did it somewhere else. And ah, it would have been cool. And that's how I feel (laughs) after I watched the movie. So I I don't think it's wrong that they did it that way. I understand why they did. But um, Well, you want it to be that way because that's the grand romantic thing. Right. Instead of just, they just hit each other. (laughs) Yeah. This movie surprised me because it was not what i expected it to be at all like i I was really expecting more of a a romance you know a harold and maude type story if you will but the way that gary and alana flirt with each other is like they kind of just uh give each other shit all the time and like that's a very shakespearean you know like it's it's very much ado about nothing and eventually you know that they're going to end up together so kissing in front of the movie theater you know they 
attempt to do that would have been the thing that you you want to happen because like i said it's like the the grand romantic gesture of like now they're finally together but then you know the rugs swept under that or pulled pulled out from under pulled out from well he he, he goes to the pinball thing and announces her as his wife type of thing and she likes you idiot that's cute but but she rolls his eyes you know she's like that's dumb like why'd you do that yeah like that's that's their entire relationship summed up in one scene yeah you know like it it ends up being really cute and And then they kiss yeah i'm really pleasantly surprised because like this movie was not at all what i thought it was going to be i got like a vibe off of how magnolia is about tragedy and uh redemption rebuilding relationships and coming to terms with stuff i found that this was kind of a another piece to that feeling but all positive instead of like the sad parts i know it's the same director so it's gonna have something like that vibe maybe Mm. but i think it successfully like is a a side piece to magnolia type of film i really like magnolia a lot so it's magnolia this movie and then punch drunk love those are my three for this guy pta so that's pretty good this movie did a a pretty good job for for once upon a time being one of the worst or one of the least liked uh tarantinos for me and this being like one of the most liked of pta for me i'd say that's pretty good definitely this Boogie Nights, and damn, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a third one. Maybe Punch Drunk Love, but then I'm also kind of leaning towards There Will Be Blood. Uh, man, toss-up between those two. Alby, what do you think? I don't know if I have a, a real PTA ranking. Just three, not all of them. <laughs> I know, I know. I just, uh, I don't know. I guess you, I haven't you seen... You were how I saw Punch Drunk Love, so I would assume that's yeah. on there. Well, yeah, I, lo- I absolutely loved punch drunk love when it came out i don't remember boogie nights like i haven't seen it since you know i rented it in the 90s you know when it came out on home video so like i really don't remember it mm. but yeah i mean punch truck drunk <laughs> that's high up there okay i guess magnolia of course i haven't seen phantom thread yet but i'm not really a daniel d lewis fan well you did so. at the time like uh, there will be blood i did i drink your milkshake yeah i was working at uh, an ice cream oh, shop at the right. time so so i kept saying i drink your milkshake and i was like, really expecting customers to come up and say that but no one ever did so yeah that makes sense they weren't cool i mean it's nashville a lot of fake cool there <laughs> eh. so the needle drops in the movie i think you said you like life on mars but when i started hearing it i was like oh no because it's like commonplace right by now uh but but it works it really really works yeah yeah it's it's unlike when queen was used at the end of atomic blonde i was like no no that doesn't it's not even appropriate take no no but like well if you want to compare these two soundtracks too because like oh right you had something to say well once upon a time in hollywood has like a whole lot of pop music in but it makes sense that way because of the theme of uh, listening to the radio because close to always listening to uh, what KJ KJ LA yeah which, which is actually a cool thing about that movie because of the whole boss radio thing from back then that's very very accurate LB, you probably, used to be a boss radio DJ. I did. <laughs> no, not. I mean, I used to be a radio DJ, not a boss radio. Come on. But, I mean, boss were. radio was a thing. It was like a, a real, I mean, that's what it was called. It was like an era of radio that whatever, you know, it's not just, oh yeah, I was boss. So that's, that's really accurate. And I was impressed by that. But like the songs that were used in Licorice Pizza are Life on Mars aside are kind of like deeper cuts from bands or, or artists that you don't hear all the time and it's really refreshing and which also felt like really accurate too because like you want to pick like the best songs and the best songs aren't always the radio singles. Yeah, there's something I really loved about it and something that really annoys me sometimes with period films is that it's always like the top top 40 from that era that they choose yeah and it's like we're listening to the radio now okay there's you know there's top 40 right now but there's also songs that uh you know we're hearing on the radio right now that are only going to live on in you know like 200 people spotify playlists but they are on the radio right now and sometimes can really take you out of the moment when you're trying to do period but you only choose like these super well-known like you know mega hits of that time and it's like there were other songs on the radio at the time there were other 
other things playing in the background of people's lives. And I love that in addition mm-hmm. to the, the, the film stock thing that you brought up earlier, that uh, it's another thing that immerses you in the world of this film is that you're hearing the stuff that they would have been hearing and not just the Life on Mars type stuff. Right. Right. There's a Doors track in this right. movie. Right. What? In the movie that we were like, what? Because like, I've never listened to the Doors, to be honest, because- Only the like, top well-known yeah, stuff. Because- that they're so ubiquitous, you know. Like any like, anything that cro- crosses our path through television documentaries or clip shows or or anything that would use the Doors without us having to listen to the Doors. So that's actually a good handful of songs, right? But it's usually mm-hmm. just uh, "Light My Fire" or "Break On Through" or whatever. I don't know what song it is, but like I was really like, "Wow, this is a really great Doors song that I never would have heard." Because I don't care to listen to the their their albums and you know their discography. I don't care about that. But it's really nice when you have a movie like this that here's something which, by you the missed. Way, yeah. By the way, I I really thought that this was going to like take place in a record store. Yeah. Why is it called Licorice <laughs> Pizza if there's no Licorice Pizza? <laughs> I really thought it was like um, Sam Goody bought out Licorice Pizza. I don't know why it's called Licorice Pizza. Okay, that's my second criticism. And I only had two, right? So yeah. why is it called Licorice Pizza? Do you know, Preston? I think just it's, it's, it's evocative of that era. And it's like this like this deep cut uh-huh. thing that like is something else that you would have heard in that, that time and that place. Like I heard that it came from like this almost cockney rhyming slang thing that like they called, you know, record is called an LP. And then LP yes. became uh-huh. Licorice Pizza. And so it's like something that's evocative. It's kind of like Vanilla Sky. It's, you know, there's, there's no Vanilla Skies in the film. And there's no like celestial phenomenon going on, but there's just something about those words and that phrase that's that says now, something. I don't remember because I've only seen it the one time. Is there a scene where they have records and they're messing around with records at all? I don't even think so. And I've seen this thing like three Re- or four times. See, see, that's the missed opportunity. That would be the link. I'd be so fine with it because I understand what Licorice Pizza is. I'm old enough, pretty old. So I get it. But that there's no records, no record store. Sure. Fine. Don't have to have that. But, like, somebody's playing a record somewhere. Some LP somewhere. Just seen somewhere. And I didn't. I don't remember seeing it. Mm, it's okay. You have recording stars in the movie. So, entire an entire family of recording stars. Uh, Yeah, you do. Entire family. Actually, this movie could have been also called Nepotism, the movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just about everybody in the movie is the son of or the cousin of or the nephew of the yeah. relative of somebody who had been somebody pretty important in the past as far as Hollywood goes or or filmmaking, you know? Somebody was somebody's somebody in that. So many people. Which is fine. It still works. No, I'm not disparaging. There's so many people that hate the whole concept of nepotism, but come on. Yeah. Come on. I would totally get somebody a job if they were related to me. I don't have any relatives. Not really. I do. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I just realized nice little bits of uh, synchronicity between the two movies. Leonardo DiCaprio's dad is the waterbed salesman. Yep. Right. Right. And and that's your link between the two, the DiCaprios. (laughs) It's not anything else. It's just those two people. (laughs) Right. Wasn't he like some kind of weirdo hippie guy back then? Yeah, he, he was like, repri- in, yeah, like the art scene and like the counterculture. Yeah, he reprised that. I wonder if he, he brought his own wardrobe. I don't know. I didn't read that <laughs> deep into the trivia. Actually, I did, and that wasn't part of it. <laughs> yeah, um, we had put this off, and it shows up on Prime, and we were going to watch it anyway but then like you suggest it and we're like okay now we actually have a reason to do it sooner yeah and i really really enjoyed it so thank you yes thank you and i agree it it is a quote-unquote better movie than once upon a time in hollywood much now what do you think about my analogy between napoleon dynamite and this is is that accurate oh yeah i definitely get that (laughs) i mean because there isn't really there's a very loose plot in that you know gary wants to get together with alana and napoleon dynamite has this loose plot in like voting for Pedro in the election, but otherwise they're just these kind of like very whimsical and light and fun vignettes just showing life in this, you know, approximation of a place that's just ever so slightly to the side of reality. Licorice Pizza, I feel, is much more grounded in the world of the San Fernando Valley of the 1970s and Napoleon Dynamite's a little bit more fantastical, but uh, I definitely feel that they are spiritual siblings. Okay. <laughs> like a little echo going on of each other. You just said vignette, and I 
never thought to say it like that. Like <laughs> uh, it's dumb because I, I like language and I like words and I like pronunciations of things and I never thought to say it like that. Vignette. Vignette is what we always say in America, <laughs> but vignette. Cool. Preston's more sophisticated than we are. <laughs> <laughs> I just have an unusual accent and don't speak like anybody else. <laughs> My parents are from New York. I was born in Houston. I grew up in St. Louis went to high school in Oklahoma. So there's always this moment when I meet new people for the first time and I eventually end up saying something and I get the like quizzical look and the, wait, where are you from? <laughs> LP. Licorice I Pizza. LP. I don't know if I have any more questions mm. about Licorice Pizza. I, like, I, I'm just so it's kind nice. of in awe yeah, of the movie. It's yeah. real nice. What was the rating on it? I don't remember. Oh, it, it was rated R because of cussing, right? The dad <laughs> in particular. More, more cussing than that. I like that that was like the one take that they used her dad. <laughs> so, Preston, seems that we've reached the end of the line. Hey, this was an absolute blast. I, I loved uh, being on, and uh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. I, like Elby said, we appreciate you pushing this forward on our docket, because, yeah. Otherwise, we would have waited, I think. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you? It's too long. I don't know. <laughs> it's too long. I'm going to go to sleep in the middle of it. Yeah. Back and forth, back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Yay. Now yeah, I love it. Yeah, my, my wife and I went and saw this thing, like, I think three times in the theater over holiday break last year and then had the pre-order in for the DVD when I came in, watched it on DVD when I came in. I, I, I love this movie. This is probably one of my, my favorite movies of the past few years. Wow. Wow, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, thank y'all. So, LB, yeah. what'd you think of that show? That was a good time. I really enjoyed talking to Preston. He's a smart cookie. I, I was thinking about the editing of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and that it is post-Sally. And she mm-hmm. is no longer with us, so she can't edit anything. Mm-hmm. And she was his, you know, Tarantino and Sally were simpatico. They were together. They mm-hmm. spoke the same language and she sharpened his work mm-hmm. to perfection. And I can't help but think that that's perhaps what would have happened had she been alive and edited his film. Like the missing ingredient sort of yeah i think that might have been it mm. yeah i mean it, of course not to disparage the work of the editor who did do this film but i think you might be right because they definitely had an understanding of each other for so long yeah. they worked for so long together so i mean that's why i'm saying this yeah but that's it that's my thought that i didn't get out on the show now it's oh, okay end. So. Uh, okay. Well, I wanted to talk about Westerns for one oh. more second. One more second. One. <laughs> one. One. Okay. I mentioned in the show, and it kind of like went on this uh, trajectory after I said the word right wing. What I was talking about is the conception that people might have of Westerns because of their grandparents and their grandparents' politics, where the... <laughs> type of western i i'm speaking about has to do with manifest destiny taking the land you know ripping the concept it off. of cowboys and indians yeah like ripping off the native americans it's difficult to really explain the patriotic sense that it is like because there is also that lawless thing so it's like when we talk about the wild wild west or you know we use wild wild west as uh, an analogy for something it's because there is no law so like anything goes and everything's free and that's good and bad right so to that point there are a handful or more of westerns especially the western tv shows like the virginian for example that clue Gulliger was on often that deal less with that right-wing ideology type of thing than a lot of westerns that people think of do um like there's sympathetic treatment towards the native americans there's well i mentioned the elvis movie yeah yeah you did flaming star and that's that was that, that was coming in in the 60s early 60s so uh-huh. i think to speak to what you're speaking about westerns were doing a bunch of different types of things and i think mm-hmm. the the smaller ones or the riskier ones were doing the more challenging work right uh, and and less than the jingoism that you're speaking of. Right. Because that was only a part of Westerns. Mm-hmm. And I think because the Elvis of Westerns really was John Wayne. You say Western, everybody. Mm-hmm. Far and wide Germans. Ah, John Wayne, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, quote unquote, knows and loves worldwide, loves John Wayne. 
only certain Americans absolutely hate him. Mm -hmm. That's what we know of. And I think that's where I think you're getting the right wing concept from. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a few other things, too. Like Gene Autry had a cowboy code that was conservative, if you want to think about it that way. And a lot of people who like Westerns are libertarians. And, you know, so it's like there's a conception. Like, like the modern cowboy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So there's definitely a conception. And I can see how some of us might be really turned off by the idea of the Western because of all that. And also, I can see why you wouldn't want to watch a Western because a lot of times they're kind of boring. Yeah, crickets. Yeah. Yeah, it all depends. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that like, I'm not lumping every Western into that category, but definitely there are a lot that are. Yeah, okay. We're online, obviously. You found us online, but mm -hmm. you want to see our Grumpire tweets every once in a while? Yeah, that's at Grumpire online. Of course, you know, you can just go to Grumpire.com. Yeah. Look at our stuff. Also on Twitter, you can find Preston. His that is Preston Fossil, and you spell that F-A-S-S-E-L. That's his last name. So, yeah, I think that's it. Check out his book. Check out our website. Good night, everybody. Good night.